Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 17th, 2010. All right, I have too much to talk about. I've overprepared. So whatever I say we're going to talk about on today's show... Yeah, we'll get to some of it and probably some of it tomorrow. It's I think I suffer some from some kind of radio production disorder. <sighs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, weird, bizarre stuff being said. People, I, I tell you, Christian pulpits, so-called Christian authors, it's just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it'd be a mess out there. And so many people, they're just winging it. They're just making stuff up. And the reality is, is that the folks <laughs> that are actually trying to correctly proclaim God's word, they're the ones who are getting in trouble. And I mean serious trouble. And, um, you know, I think of Dale McAlpine out there in the UK. In fact, we got some news regarding Dale McAlpine at, at the uh, charges against him, uh, you know, for basically he was uh, brought up on charges of basically, uh, well, he was arrested for saying that homosexuality is a sin. And uh, that's just not being tolerated anymore. So we have news from the UK today on today's edition of uh, Fighting for the Faith. And all right. Now, as I'm looking through this, um, I'm going to be doing a webinar shortly. I'm hoping this weekend um, that it'll be a two-part webinar. It'll be uh, uh, this Saturday and the following Saturday. Kind of a primer on the emergent church post-modernity and stuff like that. I've been doing some lecturing on this at uh, at different churches, and as a result of it, I, I'd like to actually make this available for uh, for a whole bunch of people. And so, uh, those people who are emergent are not going to like it. But uh, one of the things that I've done, it, 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 you know, as oh man, I've been reading like crazy. <sighs> um, I I know where all of this comes from. That's the funny thing. I I actually know where all of this stuff comes from. And I'm hoping to do some radio with uh, with Bob DeWay, hopefully this week. 
uh, where we're going to come and talk about uh, the real origins of the emergent church, where, where this thing really comes from and where what it really is. So a uh, webinar and then hopefully some uh, radio with uh, with uh, Bob DeWay. You got some good stuff. But uh, to kind of prime the pump, I, George Ellerick, uh, who writes for the Huffington Post, um, <laughs> poor George. Uh, <laughs> yo, poor guy. I feel so bad for George. His brain has been hamstrung by post-modernity. And uh, one of the things I've discovered is how to use their technique that they use to de- deconstruct the Bible, how to use it against them. And um, it's it's kind of sad and kind of funny all at the same time. So we might be, uh, in fact, I'm probably going to be, uh, this is something I've thrown in last second. Uh, talk about George Ellerick, his latest piece. He made sure to email me because he wanted me to see it and uh, share with you at least some of the information. Well, my response to him in an email that I sent him, I'll have to explain it. And then uh, let's see here. We got news from the Episcopal Church. They've um, they've officially ordained their first openly gay female bishop. And uh, and then I got a story from the uh, Huffington Post, uh, you know, called the Draw Muhammad Day. And I, w- I want to uh, share with you the comment that the Huffington Post refused to, uh, well, approve. I commented on the post and, well, the Huffington Post didn't approve my comment. Oh, and uh, and then we've got uh, breathtaking news from the uh, world of contemporary Christian music. Um, those of you Petra fans out there, I, I've got an important announcement. Yeah, those of you who were just dying to see Petra again, <laughs> you might get an opportunity. So we've got lots to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And I, like I said, I'm way overprepared. And as a result of it, um, there's some things we may not be able to get to. And so uh, with that, let's uh, play our vintage news music and then uh, whirl it up from there. All right. Uh, This is from YouTube. (laughs) Well, it says criminal charges dropped against street preacher Dale McAlpine. That's right. I've uh, I've got the audio from a video posted on YouTube uh, from the uh, Christian uh, the the Christian org that's uh, defending uh, Dale McAlpine. So uh, let, let's uh, listen in. Uh, that's right. Dale McAlpine, by the way, was the street preacher who was arrested for claim basically proclaiming what the Bible says: homosexuality is a sin. So uh, let's listen in. Prosecutors have dropped their case against a Christian street preacher who was arrested by police and charged with a crime for calling homosexual conduct a sin. The Crown Prosecution Service has written to Dale McAlpine of Workington in Cumbria, saying the case has been dropped due to a lack of evidence. Mr McAlpine was arrested in April following a conversation with a police community support officer who identified himself as a homosexual. A hidden camera recorded the moment he was arrested, and this footage has only just been released. Now, this audio is really hard to hear. What I'll do is I'll post a link up to this in the uh, Pirate Cove uh, so that you all can can see this. And, um, in fact, that's one of the things I'm going to be doing is uh, I'm going to put my program notes on a daily basis in the Pirate Cove. 
And I'm going to start doing that as of today. So today's program notes will include a link to this video as well as another video. Uh, where uh, Dale McAlpine apparently uh, had undercover an undercover camera, and he uh, he, the, he has kind of a first person perspective uh, a video with kind of grainy audio of him being arrested by these um, the police officers. And um, let me let me the audio is really hard to hear, but uh, it basically Dale Dale is saying the only time I mentioned it is when I was talking to this gentleman here when when I was up on the steps preaching I didn't mention it. So he's talking about homosexuality. Mentioned it was when I was talking to this gentleman here. Yeah. When I was up on the steps preaching, I didn't mention it then. But even so, you know, it still is not against the law. There's a, there's a, a clause. It isn't. It's against the law. But, but what about this? Uh, you're under arrest for racially aggravated Section 5 public order offence. You don't have the same thing, but you may have any defence. You don't mention one question, so if you let rely on court, you do say maybe you've made evidence. Fair enough. Mr. McAlpine says it has been an unsettling experience and he's relieved that the prosecution has been dropped. It was a ridiculous charge anyhow. I should never have been arrested. And I feel amen, amen. By the way, I'm working on trying to... Uh, I've made an overture to uh, Dale McAlpine and asked if he would come on Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to see if I can set up a Skype call with him uh, where we can have him on uh, on the program. Now, when I had originally asked him, he wasn't able to uh, come on the program because of all the legal ramifications, and I'm hoping that now the charges have been dropped, he might have uh, more freedom to come on the program. So uh, stay posted. I feel relieved that they've uh, seen sense. I'm a Christian man. I forgive the police. Um, it's important that this doesn't happen to anyone else. So we're now looking at the legal options that we've got, uh, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, that being the case, uh, we still may not be able to talk about it. <laughs> <clears throat> He's been supported by the Christian Institute, a leading national defender of religious liberty for Christians. Spokesman Simon Calvert says the police must be held to account. Cumbria police can't just walk away from this. They've arrested and charged an innocent man for no other reason than that he peacefully expressed his Christian beliefs. Right on, right on, all right. Hey, I like these guys as uh, attacked. <laughs> the government did something wrong here. Uh, the British government did something wrong. They arrested Dale Mackay Alpine for doing nothing wrong except for expressing his Christian beliefs. They've rightfully dropped the charges. It sounds like these guys are going to go after them legally. Oh, I hope they do. Oh, I, I think that's the right thing. And it's happened in other parts of the country too, so there's clearly a problem with the system, and it has to be put right. Mr McAlpine says he's grateful for the support he is receiving. Well, the support I've had has been wonderful. The Christian Institute are absolutely amazing. I thank God for them. They've been there for me throughout the whole thing. They've been a wonderful comfort, very professional, and I just thank God for them. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. It's important that we have them uh, to defend our religious liberties. Okay, so that was the audio from the video there in uh, the UK. And uh, so good news for uh, Dale McAlpine. The charges have been dropped, and it sounds like they're aggressively going to go after uh, the uh, government for arresting him uh, wrongfully, wrongful arrest. And I, I hope that they win. I hope that they win. Why? Because this is a serious issue. The, the, the Christians in the UK are being openly persecuted by the government and by the media there. 
And so, you know, unfortunately, this this uh, arrest is going to have a chilling effect on boldly, well, not even boldly, just maybe even in private proclaiming what the scriptures teach, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And so, I hope that it, you know, that uh, by them basically firing a shot across the bow of the British government. That uh, that you know, hey, they still have religious freedom, and he did nothing wrong. That maybe, just maybe, the uh, the British government will let up on their uh, overt persecution of Christians in the UK. So, way to go, Dale! Uh, you're in our prayers, and uh, and you know, thank God for uh, for the, this particular win. Now, that being said, uh, I came across a story today. Hang on a second here. Let me see if I can find this because uh, I fa- there was another story in the U- in the Telegraph in the UK uh, that came to my mind. Let's see here. Yeah, this, I saw this uh, this morning. A Christian bed and breakfast owner faces legal action from same sex couple. Yeah, so just as Dale McAlpine is being let off the hook, the uh, the pressure on Christians in the UK continues. Uh, the story says uh, Suzanne Wilkinson told the two men that it went against her religious convictions to let them share a double room at the guest house where she lives with her family. She was reported to police, but no charges were brought. However, she has now been told that Michael Black and John Morgan plan to sue her for discrimination. Uh, their claim for damages in a civil court is being brought under uh, Labor's Sexual Orientation Regulations uh, 2007, which make it illegal to refuse services to homosexuals and is being supported by Britain's leading civil liberties uh, group, Liberty. A letter before uh, before action sent by Liberty's legal director this week claims, your unlawful treatment of my clients resulted in considerable embarrassment and humiliation to them both, and they seek compensation from you for the injury to their feelings. So apparently uh, the <clears throat> the uh, same-sex couples had their feelings hurt, and now they're entitled to money as a result of it. So, uh, the, yeah, the homosexual issue uh, continues to be the uh, the thing, the, the, the club that the government and uh, the, the, basically the British society is using to bludgeon uh, Christianity into submission to uh, the culture. So pray for our brothers and sisters there in the UK. And, uh, you know, again, we're, we're very happy though for, uh, Dale McAlpine and the fact that he was able to, uh, <sighs> well, you, you got it, what I'm saying anyway. So, uh, moving along, um, let's talk about post-modernity for a minute. Okay. Um, I'm working on my second master's now. And and this is turning into a doctoral dissertation. Just want to let you know that's what this is turning into, and I'm actively working on uh, on the the doctoral dissertation part of this. As a result of it, I have been reading stuff that would make your brain hurt. <laughs> I mean, I've been reading Heidegger. I have been reading Foucault. I've been reading Derrida. I've Oh, and my brain is hurting. And anyway, the funny thing is, is that I'm actually learning how all this post-modernity deconstruction thing works. And boy, is this a useful tool to use against deconstruction. Okay, now, here's the, here's the basic idea. Uh, v, Heidegger, through Falkall and Derrida and uh, Paul Demon, these are all philosophers, Basically, have this idea that there there is no fixed meaning to language. Okay, there is no fixed meaning to language. 
Um, uh, we don't speak language, according to Heidegger. Language speaks us. I know. Just, just work with me for a second. And so the idea is, is that uh, you know, Foucault takes us to a whole other level where. Uh, basically people are oppressing other people and keeping them in bondage and slavery and exerting power over them through uh, the definitions of words. And so if you, you parents out there, uh, it, when you sit down with your children and you open up a, a you know, a, a child, a children's book, you know, like Richard Scarry's uh, Busy Town or something like that, and you point to a picture and, and you say to your young child, what's that? And he goes, that's a choo-choo twain. And what's that? Oh, that's an airplane. What's that? Oh, that's a baseball. Okay, you're teaching your child language, right? Well, you see, you, in reality, what you're doing is you're oppressing. Yeah, you're, you're engaging in oppression. And so this deconstruction uses this idea that we can just move all over the place and that there is no fixed meaning to any words, okay? And the idea is, is that there is no objective truth. There is no objectively knowable truth. And that truth is something that it's experienced by the individual as an individual is in conversation with a text. And so there is no point to saying that an author intended to say or mean a particular thing. <laughs> no, it's how the how the receiver, the reader of the text interprets the text while he's in conversation with the text. Okay. As a result of it, these postmodern guys have no problem saying, and they come right out and say it, that there are infinite possibilities in interpreting a text. Because, the, well, we don't want to be bound to an imperialistic colonial oppression tool of language and be forced into some kind of objective meaning. No, 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 no. We need to get beyond the text. We need to get to the meaning beyond words. Uh, the, and that means basically subjective subjectively how you feel about a text while you're in conversation with it. Okay. In other words, it can mean anything you want it to mean. Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, if you were, if you were to apply postmodern literary ideas and deconstruction to like Winnie the Pooh, okay, you could talk about how you could say, well, let's, let's approach Winnie the Pooh from a, you know, a, a Hegelian libertarian uh, Marxist interpretation, and what you can do is you can say, well, as I'm in conversation with the book Winnie the Pooh, I've discovered that uh, that really what we see in the Christopher Robin character is a white uh, bourgeois, uh, you know, is the white bourgeoisie, and he's oppressing and um, and subjecting, you know, the uh, pr the proletariat. That would be the the masses. Those would be you know his uh, his. Stuffed animals, Winnie the Pooh, Rabbit, Piglet, Eeyore. He's suppressing them. See, keep in mind, you know, Winnie the Pooh, Rabbit, Eeyore. Well, they're less than they're less than real. And why? Because well, the bourgeoisie always looking down their nose and oppressing. Don't view the uh, the proletariat uh, in 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 a humanizing way, but in a dehumanizing way. And so, what we're really seeing in the in the book Winnie the Pooh is the class struggle between the bourgeoisie and the pro pro proletariat. And you're sitting there going. Are you out of your mind? Well, see, don't oppress me with your fixed meanings. Don't tell me that uh, the guy who wrote Winnie the Pooh had something that he was trying to communicate. Because uh, as I'm in conversation with this text, I feel that the meaning beyond the words and beyond what's there is the symbolization that you know it has that has to do with this the class warfare struggle uh, that Marx talks about. 
you, you, you see, it, you can do this as an in infinite in, in infinite combinations. You can talk about a feminist interpretation of Winnie the Pooh. You can talk about a capitalist free market interpretation of Winnie the Pooh. You could talk about maybe even a ghost hunter's interpretation of Winnie the Pooh. I mean, just whatever you, you be in conversation with the text, and that's that. And see, then it, what happens is you're experiencing the truth of the text for you. And all you have to do is start playing around with all the different meanings, and voila, there you go. Okay, so this is what they use on the Bible. So now we, you know, we have no idea what the Bible means anymore because the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean while you're in conversation with the text. You see, and uh, I played an example of this last week. Remember George Ellerick? I you basically said, "Listen, friends, don't let friends go pomo. You just don't let it happen because it hamstrings your brain." Okay, um, the, and the reality is, is that text has the all texts have the meaning that the author intended them to mean. Otherwise, the author wouldn't have used those words to construct those thoughts to convey to you what they meant. Okay, so the easiest, most simplest way, the easiest, most simplest way to show the absurdity of this approach to language and to quote truth is to apply it to itself. And those people who are promoting this deconstruction of the Bible and are basically obliterating the meaning of the Bible, you apply this deconstructive method to their texts. Let me give you an example. George Ellerick. Oh, poor George. Anyway, um, George Ellerick, he sent me an email today. And he wanted me to take a look at a blog post that he had just written. And the, and it, he's really upset because I'm judging. Yeah, I'm so judgmental. Yeah, it's just terrible, isn't it? Anyway, uh, the name of his blog post is Throw Away the Cookie Cutters. Okay, Now, I'm going to read to you a portion of his Throw Away the Cookie Cutter blog post from The Love Revolution. By the way, you can find this over at thelovevolution.org.uk. I'll put it in today's program notes in the Pirate Cove. <clears throat> Here we go. This is George Ellerick. I remember getting into a lot of trouble when I was younger. My childhood is riddled with story after story of me doing so many awful things. I got so good at, at being so bad. I learned how to get others in trouble, mostly by pointing the finger. It gave me power. It gave me this sort of immunity over justice as long as I had a fall guy. It wasn't, full, it wasn't foolproof, mind you, but it sure made my odds more realistic. It also gave me the, the cockiness to think that I could get away with it. I have since learned that this approach to relationships isn't a healing one. It doesn't encourage reparation. If anything, it makes sure healing doesn't happen. This knowledge I gained as a young child stole some of my innocence. I knew how to judge situations so well that I could manipulate people into doing what I wanted. This is not a good thing. It, it's, it's this knowledge that I want to talk about. The knowledge of good and evil and how it can and has already gotten us into a lot of trouble. Adam and Eve is one of those stories that has a lot of meanings. It isn't a story about two literal people. In fact, there's archaeological evidence that demonstrates the story originated on a scroll in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, one of the many deeper-layered meanings could be about judging others. See, see one of the deeper-layered meanings is about judging others. Adam and Eve wanted what wasn't theirs. They consumed 
But what did they consume? They consumed the knowledge to know between good and evil and the ability to judge, to separate the difference between right and wrong, which in turn could lead to the same very thing I got into the habit of doing, judging and and incriminating others for my wrongdoing. Essentially, this happens in the garden account. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake, and so on. The blame game begins. Judgment is now in the hands of man, and it it already has dangerous implications. Yes, this, by the way, is a classic postmodern approach to the Adam and Eve story. The, it's basically just some kind of metaphorical wax nose, and you can make it mean anything. The story isn't about judging. <sighs> anyway, we continue. What they didn't come to realize is that the other part of the story is that there is that it wasn't their place to know the difference or to judge others. In fact, at one point, Eve assumes the fruit she wasn't meant to eat was also good for Adam. She judges not only for herself, but for another person. And that is good for her. It also is good for someone else. Isn't that at the heart of judgment? Why do we judge? Why do we point the finger? <laughs> Okay, now, so he sent me a link. He wanted me to read this and to react to it. And so I I fired off an email to him, and I, um, and I basically said, um, uh, I said, so let me see if I have this correct, George. You are judging those people who judge. If judging were always wrong, well, then you're in the wrong for judging those people who are judging. See, this is another reason why your theology is, well, garbage. It's self-defeating. Now, that's what I wrote to him, okay? Now, this got him upset, and he basically felt like I wasn't properly dealing with his post, okay? Well, and this gave me the idea. You know what? I'm just going to approach this te- his text the same way he approached the Adam and Eve text. I'm going to apply deconstruction to it and pour whatever meaning I want into the text. I mean, I'm going to be in conversation with it, and I'll tell you what, what interpretation I came up with as a result of being in conversation with the text. So he emailed me back, and he was a little upset uh, you know, that I, you know, that I hadn't really dealt with the, the heart of, it, of the matter. And, uh, and so I said, George, George. Remember that once a text is written, that there are li- there are a limitless number of interpretations that the reader can experience while in conversation with the text. Ironically, while I was in conversation with your text, um, the one that you pointed me to, and in, in, in the one on your loverevolution.com, uh, Love Revolution blog, I, you know, funny enough, um, I felt in my heart that this text was saying that homosexuality is a sin that Ronald Reagan was the greatest president in the United States that has ever lived, uh, that increased oil consumption by the world is a great thing for the environment, that Ariana Huffington is a ditz, and that the the non-dialectical judging is divine. You see, the key to unlocking this interpretation was found when I discovered that the Aramaic words for Adam and Eve are directly related to the Spanish word for mud, and everyone knows that mud looks like oil. And and that Ronald Reagan had to deal with oil embargoes very early in his administration. So I think your post was an excellent example of a colonial imperialistic apologetic with metaphorical implications that can be applied toward further uh, raping and ravaging of Mother Earth. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's what I felt the text was. That's how I interpreted the text. 
I mean, the, see, and I tell you, as soon as you discover the Aramaic meaning of Adam and Eve and how it directly connects to the Spanish word for mud, well, all bets are off. You can make it mean whatever you want. And so I sent uh, poor George an email basically saying, I defy you to claim that my interpretation of your text is wrong. Remember, I felt it in my heart after I was in conversation with your blog post. So there you go. How do you defeat deconstructionist stupidity? Apply that stupidity to the person applying it. That's what you do. So they're using acid to destroy meaning. Use that acid on the very words that they are using to destroy meaning. Because here's the, here's the dirty little secret. The people who are using postmodern deconstructive methods to basically obliterate the meaning of the Bible are expecting you to take their words at face value while they refuse to take the text of the scriptures at face value. Yeah. So why is it okay for their words to have fixed meanings, but it isn't okay for the Bible's words to have fixed meanings? Why is it okay for them as authors to have intents and thoughts that they are trying to convey using fixed words, uh, words that have fixed meanings, but it's not okay for God to have uh, thoughts that he's trying to convey that he expects you to understand using words that have fixed meanings? You seen the, the dirty little secret, the dirty little double standard that's going on here? So the way you get around these guys and the way you show their, you basically expose their sleight of hand is use their method on their own words. And be creative when you do it. <laughs> Please, by all means, the more whimsical, the more outlandish, the more creative, the more absurd, the better. Because keep in mind, what's at the heart of this whole thing is irrational philosophy. Yeah, more on that in a future edition of Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? 
Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theo-capitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here.
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you turn words into Play-Doh and think that you can twist them into anything you want to say, well, then I'm going to take your words and do the same things with them. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew. The other says donate. When you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And pay close attention because when you're done signing up, there's one button at the end there that says click here for information to access the Pirate Cove. Important stuff. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. By the way, George Ellerick wrote me back and was trying to convince me that his uh, that uh, basically that I can have my own interpretations, kind of, but he was trying to take me back to what he was trying to say. And so my response to him was, I said, listen, stop oppressing me with the linguistic, uh, with your literalistic interpretation of your own text. You're nothing more than a, a, a linguistic imperialist. But I will, I will not. In fact, I refuse to be oppressed by your linguistic imperialistic colonizing efforts. I'm experiencing the liberation and freedom of interpretations that take me beyond the literal meanings of words. So. <clears throat> Again, the way you defeat deconstructionism is use deconstructionism to deconstruct the words of the person telling you about deconstruction. It's self-defeating. Just apply it, apply their technique to their words. They won't like you, uh, but they 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 will be if they're consistent. There's no way they can tell you that you're wrong. All right, uh, another story here. Hang on a second here. I'll pull this up on my computer here. See, uh, oh, let's see, which one do I want to do? Yeah, th we got this one. Uh, from the Huffington Post, th by the way, my new favorite, um, absolute favorite 
cesspool of uh, liberal theology. Um, from the Huffington Post, the headline reads, uh, Mary Glasspool, first openly gay female bishop ordained by the Episcopal Church. By the way, how is it possible for the Episcopal Church to just clearly go against the clear teachings of the Word of God? Well, it's real simple. They used postmodern deconstructionism to attack the very words of Scripture to basically say that these words are meaningless, we can't know what they mean, therefore we can ordain homosexuals. It's a simple tactic. Uh, Long Beach, California, seven years after the Episcopal Church caused an uproar by consecrating its first openly gay bishop, it has done the same thing again, this time with a woman. The Reverend Canon Mary Glasspool of Baltimore was ordained and consecrated on Saturday, making her the second openly gay bishop in church history and one of the first two female bishops in the Diocese of Los Angeles 114 uh, in its 114-year history. She was installed at Long Beach Arena before 3,000 people who burst into applause at the end, church spokesman Bob Williams said. Just before the ceremony began, a man stood, shouted about the needs to repent and held up a sign that read, do not be deceived. Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, perfectly reasonable message. I'm sure after he was escorted out. Yeah. See the Episcopal church is not interested in. Yeah, if you actually preach the Bible to Episcopalians, they're going to escort you out. Don't you think that's kind of interesting? Don't you think that little thing kind of tells you what's really going on here? Yeah, let me read that again. Just before the ceremony began, a man stood, shouted about the need to repent, and held up a sign that read, Do not be deceived. Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. After he was escorted out, a young boy in the same section rose, holding a Bible and shouted similar slogans, while security guards also let him out. Yeah, see the Bible in God's word. Stop giving us the Bible. We're, we don't want that in our church. Yeah, take those people out. How dare they quote the Bible to us? <clears throat> the Reverend Canon Diane M. Jardine Bruce of San Clemente, California, was also ordained Saturday. The two women were elected last December to serve as assistant bishops to the Diocese 6 County Territory, but conservative Episcopalians had urged the church not to ordain Glasspool. This, the decision to do so highlights a continued Episcopal co uh, commitment to uh, accepting same-sex relationships despite the enormous pressure from other Anglicans. How about despite what the Bible says? Uh, don't confuse me with words. Anyway, Bishop John Bruno, who gave a sermon at the ceremony, said he once opposed ordaining women, but now uh, would be happily serving alongside of two of them. Mm -hmm. Bruno defended the church's inclusive policies. Um, the world's, uh, the world, quote, the world's transformed only if we turn to each other and every one of our brothers and sisters and see the face of Christ superimposed on them, he told the audience. Really? Where is that in the Bible? Okay, so here we've got an Episcopalian priest saying that the world is transformed only if we turn to each other and every one of our brothers and sisters and see the face of Christ superimposed on them. Yeah, yeah that's like saying, you know, the only way that you lose weight is by, when you look at a salad, seeing a burrito superimposed over the burrito so that you only eat healthy things. See, that's how you lose weight. Uh, the ones we disagree with the most are the ones we're obligated to share our lives and teach the most. No, we need to call them to repentance. 
and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Uh, the Episcopal Church, which is the Anglican body in the United States, caused turmoil on the uh, in the church in 2003 by consecrating the first openly gay Bishop V. Jean Robinson of New Hampshire. Breakaway Episcopalian conservatives have formed a rival church, the Anglican Church in North America. Several overseas Anglicans have been pressuring Arch, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, spiritual leader of the world's 77 million Anglicans, to officially recognize the new conservative entity. In 2004, Anglican leaders asked the Episcopalian Church for a moratorium on electing another gay bishop while they tried to prevent a permanent break in the fellowship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, too late. <sighs> Since the request was made, some Episcopalian gay priests have been nominated for bishop, but none was elected before Glasspool. In July 2009, the Episcopal General Convention in the U.S., uh, uh, the U.S. Church's top policy-making body, affirmed that gay and lesbian priests were eligible to become bishops. Glasspool and Bruce, uh, who leaves her post as pastor of St. Clement's Episcopal Church in San Clemente, will also be the 16th and 17th women to be elected bishops since the first Barbara Harris was uh, selected for such a post in Massachusetts in 1988. Harris was one of seven bishops who helped consecrate Glasspool at Saturday ceremony. Glasspool, 56, an advisor or canon for the eight years of the Diocese of Maryland's bishop, said that in an essay on the Los Angeles Diocese website that she had an intense struggle while in college with her sexuality and the call to become a priest. She did not speak Saturday, but told a gathering of media Friday that the church's willingness to ordain women and gays shows a commitment that goes beyond mere inclusive language. Mm-hmm. Inclusive language. Postmodern. Uh, we are being the church. We are being the church. We say we are. Uh huh. We're not just saying it. We're doing it. And there's something very powerful about that. No, there's something very apostate about that. There's something very wrong about that. There's something very sick about that. Because you guys are basically um, giving the middle finger to God. That's what it comes down to. And uh, shown in your actions. Somebody stands up with a Bible and quotes what the Bible says. And what do you do? You escort them out. You should repent, fall on your knees, and pray to God to forgive you. <sighs> yeah, well, there you go. So that's what's going on in the uh, Episcopal Church. And uh, talk about the Huffington Post. Um, I was at the Huffington Post and read a story and it want, it just begged for me to comment on it and um let me read to you the story it has to do with um dr cartoon drawings of the prophet muhammad um <clears throat> the name of the um article is draw muhammad day collectively punishing muslim americans collectively punishing muslim americans that's the headline from the huffington post by the way this is my most favoritest paper in the whole world. <laughs> in the wake of the self-censorship controversy surrounding South Park's portrayal of the Prophet Muhammad, artists' intent on defending freedom of speech have responded by organizing an event that they call Draw Muhammad Day to take place on May 20th. That's right, the... Um, there's a website. Let, let me see if I can pull the website up. Hang on. Open in a browser. Um, yeah, it, the, the website address is drawmohammedday.com. Drawmohammedday.com. It is, you know, the, the, 
In fact, let me read from their website. <clears throat> Draw Muhammad Day 2010. Th- this idea was originally started by Seattle artist Molly, Nord- Molly Norris after the censorship that has been that has been happening on South Park this year. Norris created a cartoon that called for May 20th to be Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. Norris has uh, pulled the idea of Draw Muhammad Day, but I wish to continue it on. At the same time of this writing, I do not know of any place to centrally collect images of Muhammad considered considered this to be that place. So I will pool all the images, and on the morning of May 20th, 2010, I will publish an image gallery containing all appropriate images for the world to see. So if you if you're an artist and you and you draw cartoons and you would like to participate in the Draw Muhammad Day uh uh celebrations on May 20th, go to drawmohammedday.com. Now, how does the Huffington Post what's their angle on this? Well, the people who are standing up for freedom of speech are now, well, they're collectively punishing Muslim Americans. They're they're collectively punishing them. You see, yeah, see, this is just terrible. Now, you'd think that the Huffington Post would be all about protecting freedom of speech and standing up for freedom of speech, but no, 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 no. Can't have that. No, this is um, this is just terrible. These people who are standing up for freedom of speech and for the right to draw Muhammad, they are collectively punishing Muslims. The fact is that millions of Muslim Americans, many of whom have known about the South Park caricatures of Muhammad for years, behaved exactly the way free speech advocates wanted them to, by remaining silent or expressing their feelings peacefully. The handful of thugs at the New York-based site called Revolution Muslim, who, by the way, are unwelcome in every New York mosque for for their extremist rantings, were the only exceptions, and now these Muslim Americans are being subject to mass insult as thanks for their respect of South Park's free speech rights. Let's think for a moment about what is motivating the people behind Draw Muhammad Day. Is it revulsion at religiously motivated death threats? No, I I don't think so. Just this week, Congressman Bart Stupak wrote that he had received so many death threats, that's actually phoned-in threats, not just one passive-aggressive blog post, that he was advised to beef up his security. It's safe to assume that most of those death threats were fueled by a religious fervor, but since the religion in question isn't Islam, it, it gets a pass. By the way, I've received death threats for what I do here at Fighting for the Faith, What's my solution? Keep doing what I'm doing. I've taken appropriate measures to protect myself with deadly force. But, you know, hey, if I die doing this, I die doing this. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Anyway, we continue. Uh, maybe it's just to, uh, maybe it's to show that all Muslim all Muslims that attacks on free speech won't be tolerated. But the fact is that over the course of ten years, millions of Muslims respected the free speech of South Park and didn't even lodge a polite complaint with Comedy Central. What exactly are we being punished for? Our inability to enforce a zero tolerance policy and prevent a blogger from hitting the enter key. So apparently, see if you draw. Uh, You get the point here. So here we've got a Muslim who's basically claiming that the draw Muhammad Day thing that's taking place on the Internet, where cartoonists and illustrators and artists are basically being, you know, given the opportunity to stand up for freedom of speech, that this is nothing more than a collective punishing of 
of peaceful Muslims by insulting them, by drawing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, so this prompted me to attempt, my first attempt at posting a comment over at the Huffington Post. And um, I basically said, if oh, oh, if only Christians had this to worry about. Yeah, you know, Christians. Yeah, could you imagine if the only insult that we Christians had to endure was Jesus being drawn as a cartoon character? Yeah, I mean, if that was, I mean, the, the creators of South Park are actually creating an entire cartoon series based on Jesus. And I'm sure it's not going to be sacrilegious at all. No, not in the slightest. Yeah, if, if Christians only had to endure, if the, the, the worst thing that we had to endure was people writing, turning Jesus into a cartoon character, the world would definitely be a fair place. But no, see, Christians have to endure seeing their Savior portrayed as a practicing homosexual. You ever heard of the Broadway hit called Corpus Christi? Where Jesus is portrayed as a homosexual? Or how about, you remember the movie The Last Temptation of the Christ? Yeah, Willem, Willem Dafoe? Yeah, it, see, again, see, that portrayed Jesus as, well having homosexual fantasies. You see, we Christians have had to endure far worse than having our Savior portrayed in a cartoon. Why is it okay for Christians to have to endure the insults that we endure day after day after day after day, week after week, year after year, the full-out assaults against our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Him being stuck upside down, a crucifix upside down in a vat of urine. The name of the, and by the way, that was in, in a government paid for art, uh, art display. And the name of that particular art piece was called Piss Jesus. Yeah, see, we've had to endure our Lord and Savior literally being held upside down in urine. Him being portrayed as a homosexual. Uh-huh. How come this is collective punishment of Muslims, yet where are the Muslims standing up for Christians and the insults that we have to endure? Nowhere to be heard or seen. So, I mean, seriously. But, you know, Christianity doesn't teach that we murder infidels. Islam does. So I stand with the artists who want to stand up for freedom of speech, and I hope and pray that it's a huge success, that Draw Muhammad Day on May 20th is a raving success. Not because I want to see Muslims insulted. No, because I stand up for freedom of speech. In a pluralistic society, in the marketplace of ideas, yeah, enduring insults is part of the territory. Get over it. 
Stop making it a big deal about somebody drawing a cartoon of Muhammad. And if your God, Allah, is so compelling as the true God, then start evangelizing people for Islam. But stop doing it at the edge of a sword and stop blowing people up. And stop calling Jews apes and pigs. We're up on our second break. And by the way, we're, uh, we're going to we come back. Um, real quick, we'll talk about Petra, and then we're going to get into our sermon review today. Our sermon review comes to us via New Spring Church. Pastor Perry Noble, the name of the sermon is Punctuation, What Do I Lack? And uh, it's been a while since we've reviewed a Perry Noble sermon, and I have news. He finally got back to me uh, regarding um, whether or not he will meet me in a sermon cage fight. So we have uh, news regarding the sermon cage fight on the other side of the break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can be my, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. 
That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Fighting for the faith. Yeah, I, I can never understand. I, I, I don't understand it. They, the uh, Muslims get all bent out of shape. That uh, somebody drew a cartoon of Muhammad. Yet they turn around and collectively insult Christians and Jews. Calling them infidels. Calling the Jews apes and pigs. Yeah, I, I don't get that. Anyway, all right, uh, moving along here, uh, we've got news uh, from the uh, contemporary Christian music. Would this, would this be contemporary Christian music? Uh, those of you who remember this song, sing along. Yeah, this is cutting-edge contemporary Christian music. Yeah, this is the album I bought after I was convinced that I had to get rid of my Journey albums and my Beatles albums. Told that I would go to hell unless I listened to this. I was told that this uh, band, that their music was like the equivalent of Journey. See, that what they do, what Christianity does, is that they give you equivalents. In fact, we them nowadays they have a Christian uh, Britney Spears. Uh, has the Christian Lady Gaga appeared yet? Outside of If you can remember this song when it was out on vinyl, uh, 
then creeping decrepitude is probably stalking you the same way it's stalking me. Okay, that's all I can take. Uh, anyway, um, the I mean, I know you all have been waiting for this. I mean, who cares about the Eagles getting back together or, you know, some major secular band? Uh, Petra is uh, coming back. Yay. Um, <clears throat> from crossrhythms.co.uk. Uh, Don't worry, I'll put a link up to this in the program notes today. One of the pioneering bands in Christian rock music, Petra, have surprised the contemporary Christian music scene by reforming. I'm sorry, but shouldn't the sentence read, one of the pioneering bands in uh, Christian rock music, Petra, have surprised the um, archaic Christian music scene by reforming. The reformed, reformed group brings together band members from various Petra lineups. And will feature Greg X. Vols on vocals. Yay. Bob Hartman guitar. By the way, Bob Hartman is actually a, a very good guitar player. I, I gotta give him props. He's actually very skilled at the guitar. Um, John Lowry keyboards, uh, Mark Kelly, uh, bass, and uh, Louis Beaver on the drums. Cla- the, this was, the, the announcement was made on classicpetra.com, their website. Petra will be back in studio this summer to Re-record a CD of previous hits from the records Never Say Die. Yeah, I just am so looking forward to seeing a bunch of overweight white guys like myself, old overweight white guys running around being contemporary for Jesus. Yay, yay. Yeah, I mean, seriously, can anyone tell me, point me into the direction of the Christian Lady Gaga, because I'm bored to tears with the Christian uh, Britney Spears. She's just boring me to death. Anyway, so there you have it. Hooray, hooray, hooray. I'm, uh, do I sound bitter? Anyway, um, so anyway, with that in mind, we're going to move on to our sermon review. I know that you are just, you. I'm sure uh, that they will be playing to sell out uh, crowds at local bars. I'm just absolutely positive that that's going to be the case. Don't send me comp tickets. <laughs> I know what some of you are thinking. Don't. No, just, just get that out of your brain right now. I will 
sell them on eBay for <laughs> in order to help support Pirate Christian Radio. I promise you, I will do that. <laughs> okay, uh, time for our sermon review. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. Preached by Pastor Perry Noble, entitled, Punctuation, Question Mark. What do I lack? Now, I promised you that I have some... Harry Noble news regarding the sermon cage fight. So <clears throat> let me kill this music here. And let me remind you, back in March, um, I responded to something that Perry Noble said, and I challenged him to a sermon cage fight. Listen carefully. Here's a This will jog your memory regarding what um, Pastor Noble has said. The discouragement. And here, here's the thing. Here's the thing that blows my mind. It's when they come up and say this. <clears throat> Pastor, don't take this personal. You know what that's like? If you're a dude, you understand this. This is like a dude walking up and kicking him in the nuts and saying, now, don't let that hurt. Like, I just mentioned it, and dudes went, oh, oh, see? Criticism hurts. I've heard some people say, well, you need to listen to your critics. Well, there's so many of them now with the Internet that if you try to listen to all your critics, you will lose your flipping mind. Listen to your coaches. Not your critics. Because listen, no great player, let's think about football. No great football player ever became great because they stopped playing to listen to the fat guy in the stands with a hot dog tell them how to play a game because he plays PlayStation. You know how the great players become great players? They listen to their coaches, and they listen to other players in the game that have gotten dirty and have gotten bloody and have gotten sweaty and know what it's like to pay the price. That's who you listen to. Listen, there are people that, there are people that go online and review people's sermons. So anyway, they're reviewing my sermons. You know why they have the time? You know why they review your sermons? They don't have the balls to preach one of their own. So that's just to remind you, Perry Noble basically claiming, you know, hey, you know, they don't have, I, I don't have the nuggets to preach my own sermon. Well, no, that's not true, Perry. That's just not true. And um, by the way, he gave an answer. He finally gave an answer. And this has taken two months to get an answer from him, uh, whether or not he will meet me in, this, in a sermon cage fight uh, at at New Spring Church. It, it took some coaxing. It took some work. It took some behind-the-scenes work on my part to kind of prod him along. I mean, he do, doesn't he claim to be a leader? I mean, he's a leader of leaders. He teaches people how to lead. He's all about leadership, but he didn't even have the ability to make a decision, yes or no, as to whether or not he would take me up on my challenge. Well, Perry Noble has finally chimed in. And the answer is no. He won't face me in a sermon cage fight. So be it known that um, I have the nuggets to preach my own sermon and to preach it at New Spring Church in Anderson on his turf. But Perry Noble, well, he doesn't have the nuggets 
to face me. That's, I mean, that's just what it comes down to. It's, it's, you know what? I didn't expect it to be any different. Cause one thing I've learned about Perry Noble is that he's pretty much a toothless dog. He, he's got, he's all bark, but no bite. He's a big talker, big talker, but, um, he's too much of a coward to actually face and listen to his critics, especially this one. But, uh, I, after listening to the sermon today, as I was preparing the program, I think it's probably a wise idea on Perry's part to not meet me in a sermon cage fight because it's pretty clear I would mop the floor with him. Yeah, it's he does not know how to handle God's word at all. And see, the 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 idea behind the sermon cage fight is is that the winner would be decided by a panel, and that there would be criteria. That would be proper handling of the text, things like that, a proper distinction of law and gospel. And it's very clear to me after listening to this sermon that we're going to be reviewing. Well, I, it wouldn't the the, the sermon cage fight wouldn't even be close. I mean. And I can understand it, Perry. I get it. You, listen, I know you wouldn't want me to embarrass you by defeating you in a sermon cage fight on your own turf. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? So, I, you know, I understand why you've gracefully and graciously bowed out and decided not to meet me in the sermon cage fight because, well, quite frankly, I would have destroyed you, and so uh, you you couldn't have that happen. I get it. I get it. You know, but uh, keep in mind. Um, it's official. I do have the guts and the nuggets to preach my own sermon. And I do have the guts and the nuggets to preach a sermon on your turf. You don't have, Perry, you don't have the guts to face me in public and to preach a dueling sermon against me. Because it's clear I would absolutely clean your block. With that in mind, uh, let's... <laughs> Dive into our sermon review today. Again, the name of the sermon is Punctuation, uh, question mark, what do I lack? And the sermon text is taken from uh, Mark chapter 10. So uh, with that in mind, uh, here is Perry Noble. So anyway, um, gauntlet, it's going to happen. If you can sponsor kids, swing by the table. Get your Bibles out. If you got them, let's open to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to talk about uh, the fourth message in the, in the punctuation series, which is question mark, not comma, like some of you have in your bulletins. Let me set it up like this. Um, Lucretia, my wife, and I, we went on vacation uh, several, week, several, several weeks ago. And when we go on vacation, I'm kind of an, an action-adventure guy. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I really am. And so I don't, I don't do the bird-watching trip thing. I don't do, I don't do the, you know, that I, we were looking at a guide and said... Uh, sorry, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> yeah, Perry's um, starting off this sermon by preaching about, well, himself. So if we had actually met in a sermon cage fight, I'm pretty certain that he would have had points deducted at this point. Because he's not, he's not in the text at this point. Thank you, Perry. I'm so glad to know that you're an adrenaline junkie. It really helps me grow closer to Jesus to know that. I said, whale watching. I'm like, I do that every morning when I go by the mirror. So why would I want to do it? So, and by the way, that's, that's so boring. You go out and you look at a big fish. And there's always some annoying tur tourist there that's, always, that's already been on that trip and he's telling you everything. And you're like, you know, throwing him over going, there's a Bible store, Jonah. Let's watch that one. So I'm not that guy. But, but if it's action adventure, I like it. 
So we were in St. Lucia for our 10-year anniversary, and we were looking on some of the options, the tour options, and one of them was to hike the second highest mountain in St. Lucia. It's called the Gros Baton. And we were like, you know what? That's pretty cool. And we started reading it, and it said there was a disclaimer, which anytime there's a disclaimer, you, you need to pay attention to the disclaimer. And the disclaimer said, you must be in excellent physical shape to do this. Now, here, here's the deal. I talk a lot about food. I talk about how food and brownie illustrations and stuff like that. But pretty much, I, most of the time, I, I do really eat really good. I eat a lot of chicken. I eat a lot of fish. I eat a lot of salads. I actually started eating fruit recently. That's kind of weird. My body's kind of in revolt mood right, right now. But I started, I started doing that, and I'm in really good shape. I go out um, probably two or three times a week, and I run between seven and eight miles. Um, I lift weights. I'm actually working a little P90X. Any P90Xers in here? Yeah, don't you want to punch Tony Horton in the face? Anyway, um, I, I just, I'm, I'm a P90X guy. I, I like that. It's a great workout. I'm, in, I'm probably in the best shape I've ever been in in my life. And so when I read the disclaimer, I was like, well, I'm sure there's some people that struggle with walking to the top of that mountain. But, but I'm good. Like, I'm good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick that mountain's butt in, in the name of Jesus, of course. And so, so Lucretia and I signed up for the mountain trip. You know, we get there in the taxi, and, and, and we, had, we had the guide. We, they give you a guide so you can go up the mountain. And she was, um, I guess she was mean, or, or she was mad that day. She was a little mean. I don't remember her name. I gave her a nickname, Adolf Hitler, uh, because, because she was... She was a little, uh, I don't know if she was mad or ill, and I don't know if I asked her the wrong question. Um, I don't think she really got my humor. And, and so, uh, so I asked her this question because it was a two-hour hike to the top of the mountain. I said, what's the fastest you've ever made it to the top of the mountain? She said, 53 minutes. Now, I, don't, I think that question might have set her off a little bit, or maybe she just didn't like the way I looked or whatever. But we started, and we were going at a, at a really fast pace. And so we start going up the mountain, and it was it was the most intense hike I've ever been on in my life. You're, it's like going on a tread or on a stair climber for like an hour and a half. And we start passing people, and here's what's funny: they started from the same point we started. They just started like 30 minutes before we started, and we're passing these people left and right. And I'm like, I don't think I don't know if we should be doing this, but but I was like, I'm in excellent shape. I'm Pastor P90X. I can I can I can handle this. So we're going up the mountain, and all of a sudden, my shirt starts getting you know, really wet. I had on two shirts, so I had the sweat ring. Before I note it, note, uh, note it. Before I note it, <laughs> I spell tater with a P, not a P. Anyway, so listen, my grandma's coming out in me. My shirt was completely soaked. Both shirts were completely soaked. And about three-fourths up the way of the mountain, my, like my body, when I, I, I looked like I just got out of the shower. There was nothing dry on me. Nothing. I was soaking wet, and then my, my skin got really clammy, and I started shaking all over. And I, started, I came to the conclusion that this was not good. And so I, literally, I'm like, I can, if I dehydrate on top of this mountain, my God is... I mean, she was like this tall, and she weighed maybe 22 pounds soaking wet. I mean, like, I don't know if there's a... I don't know if there's a place up there where they roll big fat Americans off the side of the mountain, but that would have, that, 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 that's how I would have gotten down. I knew my wife wasn't going to bring me, or she would have drugged me down. <laughs> so I'm here, I sat on this, I sat on this bench and I looked at Lucretia and here I am in excellent shape. I kind of pride myself sometimes in, in being in good shape. And I looked at Lucretia, I said, I, I can't go. I can't go any further. And she's like, do you mind if I go? Because, I mean, she was fine, you know. And I was like, no, you can leave me here. 
For better or for worse, just remember. And, and so anyway, no, I told her, I said, please, I said, go ahead and go. I sat there on the bench and, and, and contributed about two pints of blood to the mosquitoes in St. Lucia. It was unbelievable. But I remember God, like, like I got incredibly humbled in that experience. Because, because I started a journey and I thought that I was better than I really was, but I couldn't quite make it to the top because I had some limited. I, I, I really, really did get humbled. Because at the end of the day, let me just say it, I thought I was better than I really was. Now, that's my physical experience in St. Lucia. But, you know, for some of us, every week, that's our spiritual experience at church. The thing I've discovered about church people is we're really good at thinking that we're better than we really are. Come on now. Come on. Some of you know this, but you left because you went to church with people like this. You left Okay, I want to point something out here. He's using the law, and this is actually a decent point. Okay? Now, the purpose of the law is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. Let's see if what he does with this. This is not a bad point that he's making. If he basically was pointing out is Christian hypocrisy. Let's continue. Let's see what he does. The church. You're just coming back to the church. Church people are some of the worst people on the planet to think that we're better than we really are. And so we'll walk into a service and we think we got it all together. And so today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And let me, let me just tell you, we don't do it every week. And some churches do it every week. And I, that's fine. They're, they're, Jesus never indicates how often to do it in the Bible. He just says, when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Okay, I want to point something out to you. I want you to listen very carefully to what he's talking about when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. He interprets baptism in the Lord's Supper in light of the law, not the gospel. Baptism in the Lord's Supper are gifts from God. He's turning them into our works. Listen carefully. And so today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper all too often is an ordinance that we use to make us feel better about ourselves. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread and we take the, the, the juice, we're literally saying Jesus. Wine. It's wine. It doesn't say juice. It's wine. Jesus, you've got all of me. That song that we just sang, arms open wide, here I am. You've got everything. No. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that when you take communion, you're saying, Jesus, you've got all of me. No. The words of institution are so clear. Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, drink, this is my the blood of the new covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Communion is not you, is not you saying, okay, Jesus, you've got all of me. No, it's Jesus saying, I've done it all for you. Big difference. When you take communion in light of the law as something that you're basically doing, saying, okay, Jesus, it's my surrender to you. You've now got all of me. You're, do, you're doing communion in light of the law. G communion is a gift. The body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The way you take the Lord's Supper worthily is to recognize the body and blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Communion is gospel. It's not law. And it's a time for us to refocus or to reflect and refocus on this question.
does everything in my life really belong to Jesus? Oh, good night. Navel-gazing, turning inward. No, it's to point you to the cross, not inside of yourself. Shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. You're coming to the Lord's table and confessing in a way, I'm a sinner and I haven't and I continue to sin. What Perry's preaching here is the kind of stuff that will drive you crazy. It's the works righteousness wheel. Or is there an area of my life? That I'm holding back on him. Just one. <laughs> There's just one area of my life that I'm holding up back on Jesus. It's called the whole thing. You ever look at the Ten Commandments? How are you stacking up on those? Is there something? Is there something lacking? But in my walk with Jesus, because here's what I <laughs> have. You sinned today? then yeah, there's something lacking in your walk with Jesus. It's not your walk. It's Jesus' perfect righteousness for you. His perfect walk for you, given to you. Oy, oy, oy. I've discovered, per- and this is personal. If Jesus is going to point to me and say, hey, Perry, there's something you lack, then that thing I lack, most likely, or that thing I lack is holding me back from having a consistent, passionate, intimate walk with him. So, Perry, how you stacking up on the Ten Commandments, by the way? I mean, how you doing? I mean, have you reviewed them lately? Is there anything in the Ten Commandments that's holding you back? I mean, are you, are you now keeping them perfectly? Keep in mind, the Ten Commandments demand that you keep them perfectly. So how are you stacking up? How are you doing, Perry? Are you standing there basically t- saying, hey, listen, there ain't nothing in my life. There's no part of my life. There's nothing that I lack. I'm pulling it off. I'm obeying. I'm doing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the way, by the way, with somebody who mishandles the law, turn it back on them and crank it up. And there's a difference in walking around Jesus and walking with Jesus. And so today, today, and listen, listen, I want this church, I want this church to be a place where we come in and many Sundays we're encouraged, many Sundays we're challenged, many Sundays we're inspired, but today, today, you won't hear, what about repentant and receiving? Day service, and if you pick today to come for the first time, come back next week, I promise you it'd be probably a little bit more fun. Today... I want every one of us to focus on how we're doing really and what is that area in our life, that one area that we're holding. Just one, really. Holding back on Jesus and we won't fully surrender. In your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, there's a story that appears in all three Gospels. It's the story of the rich young ruler. If you're from a church background, you've heard this story so many times. But we're going to look at it from a completely different perspective today. And I just want to, I just want to share several points. No, he's not. He's going to basically give you the same perspective that everybody else who completely doesn't understand the text gives you. It's, he's going to give you law. But I'm going to show you where the Gospel is in this text points with you. Um, and and here's, here's what's so weird about the story about the rich young ruler. Um, I see myself in this story, and I think all of us, hopefully at some point by the end of this message, we're going to see ourselves. There's three points today. Number one, it's not about the show. 
It's not about the show. Because as church people, we know how to put on a show. We really do. As church people, we know how to put on a show. And I want you to, I want you to look at this guy in Mark chapter 10 because this is fascinating. Now, it, let me just say this before I get started. It bothers the heck out of some people that I can't read through an entire verse without stopping and commenting on it. And so if that's you, you're going to hate verse 17. Just kind of throw that out there. Here we go. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way. Stop. Got to say something. He was on his way to Jerusalem. That's very significant. We're going to come back to that. Because Perry's right. That is absolutely significant. Perry, great point. Because ultimately he was going to Jerusalem to do what? To die for our sins. To die. Not just to die, to die for our sins. You correctly pointed out that Jesus is on his way somewhere to do something. It's not just die, it's die for our sins. That's where the gospel is in this. It's not just to die, it's to die for our sins. Yeah, it's very important. On As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. Oh, stop, stop. That's awesome. Because, see, in our culture, we see men run all the time. Like, if a man's in, I, I've been in airports, I like being in airports, and you see men, they're late for their flight, and they're kind of jumping over things, knocking people over. I mean, we get urgent, like at a football game, we're running so we can make the kickoff. Or with me, particularly, like when Lucretia and I go out to a restaurant, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you're walking toward the door, there's another couple walking to the door, you kind of measure them up a little bit to think maybe I could, you know, and, and, cause the goal is to get in the, before them, cause you get a better seat, right? Uh, Perry, stay on task here. Teach the text. Stop talking about you. Right? I need to be more like Jesus. Yeah, he hadn't pointed that out to me yet because I, 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 I got to get in there because I got to eat, break the bread of life, whatever. I run, we, none of us have a problem with men running. Here's the deal. In this culture, men did not run. Men did not run because if you ran, it showed a sign of, of urgency and men were, less, men were just so laid back in this culture. So men did not run. So for a man to be running, like you got Forrest Gump right here in the scriptures running after Jesus, for a man to be running, this is huge. He was literally, he was literally running after God. Now I like this guy so far, but let's keep reading because it gets better. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. That's cool. You got an emotional guy right here. You got emo worshiper right here in scripture. That's what you got. He's emotional. Now, I don't know about you. I'm, a, I'm an emotional guy. Straight up. First movie I ever went to, Disney movie, Fox and the Hound. How many of you saw Fox and the Hound? Yeah. I cried. I did. When Copper and Todd couldn't be friends anymore at the end. Remember that? I'm a copper. I'm a hound dog. Uh, Perry, you're not in the story. Stop talking about yourself. Remember that? <laughs> at the end, they couldn't be friends anymore. I cried. Forrest Gump, I cried. I didn't go see the notebook. I just make fun of men that did in the crowd because I know, I know I'd be a, uh, I'm, I, I'm an emotional worshiper. There are people here that, that you're, you're emotional in worship. You've got your hands raised, you're weeping. Have you ever done that riding down the road like a song just hits you and you start weeping? You got snot attack going on. People are driving up to you looking, you're like, it's all, I'm this way because of Jesus. And they're like, oh wow, I need to know that guy. I, I'm, I'm emotional. 
nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with being emotional. But here's, here's what I've discovered. I'm just going to say this and move on. Not everyone, but some people are emotional in worship because they're hiding something. This guy was. He runs after God. He's emotional in worship. And look at this. Look at this. Fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So not only is he running after God, not only is he emo worshiper, but he has his journal out with his pen going, I need for you to drop some wisdom on me and tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. He's asking the right questions. And hey, just, just between me and you, from the outside looking in, I like this guy, but as we're going to discover in a little while, he wasn't real. He was just putting on a show. Um, no, I got to throw a flag on that. No, he wasn't putting on a show. I think the guy was sincere. The text doesn't give us any indication that he was putting on a show. He was sincerely asking a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the problem, though. That's the question shows he doesn't understand. What must I do to inherit? Inheritance are not earned. They're given. As a gift. This guy's focusing in on the law. This is a great text that shows the confusion of law and gospel and how Jesus handles it by cranking up the law. But there's more to this gospel wise, but Perry's completely lost in this text because now he's eisegeting. Okay, if you've listened to any sermon reviews I've done in the past from Perry Noble, Perry Noble has an ox an axe to grind. He has an axe to grind against people who say he doesn't handle the scriptures correctly, those who say he, they want to go deeper in God's word, uh, those who, uh, who study theology and doctrine and stuff like that. And what is Perry? He is basically a, he's a pietist, and not only that, he lies about his own righteousness. Okay, Just plain and simple. He ain't telling it straight because <sighs> never comes to grips. Never, I mean, basically, he's telling us, like, hey, I'm the one doing this. Okay, listen carefully. Watch, he's going to switch to his favorite axe, and he's going to start grinding it here in a minute. And this is a mishandling of the text. It's eisegesis. I, another sure sign that this is probably a good, it's good, it's, it was wise of Perry not to meet me in a sermon cage fight because I would have cleaned his clock. I learned early when I first received Christ. I received Christ. I learned this early. If you want to play the church game, it's not how you actually live that matters. It's how others perceive that you live that matters. If you want to play the church game. Because, let's, couple, I even hate these terms, but I'm going to throw them out there. I hate these terms. Um, when I first became a Christian, the, the group I ran with listened to Christian music. I can't stand because Jesus didn't die for music. But anyway, they listened to Christian music. And I didn't. I listened to secular music because it was the late 80s, early 90s, man. I couldn't give up Tone Lope. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, and it goes a little something like this. Hit it. I, I just, I, I, I can do the whole song. Probably shouldn't do it here, but, but I can do the whole song. I like some Don Henley. He came out with a great album in the late 80s, early 90s. This is the last worthless evening. I love that. Love that. Um, Vanilla Ice was, was big. For two seconds, and I listened to him. But um, both of those seconds, I mean, I, 
I love that. And so I would listen to my secular stuff. But when I went to church or when I hung out with these people, I would put my radio on the Christian station. So when they got in the car, they could be like, oh, you're listening to Christian music. I'd be like, yes, I've been praising God all day long. And Tone Loke's under my seat going. Okay, that's called hypocrisy, by the way. And this is one of the problems with American evangelicalism. Because of its emphasis on the law and not the forgiveness of sins won by Christ, it basically teaches people that the way you move ahead is by putting on a false front that you've got it all together. The thing is, is that Perry's preaching actually, believe it or not, will create people who act like they've got it together when they don't. Let's continue. Wow, thing. And I'm like, get, get, get back under there. Because, see, I was more concerned about how others perceived me than how I was actually living. Oh, it's great. Uh, you remember, remember going to church and looking down on people because they didn't dress as good as you? Remember that? Remember that? I mean, like nobody here does that, of course. But remember that? Because I remember going to church and I would wear the long sleeve dress shirt with the tie that you actually tied. And there would be dudes in the church that wore the short sleeve dress shirt with a tie, which, by the way, that's a bad idea. Just it says nothing about your spirituality. It says everything about your fashion taste. I have none. You should. I mean, you just shouldn't do that. Or and the clip-on tie. Anyway, so so I remember literally. I'm not even making this up. Thinking I was more godly than somebody because I had on a long sleeve dress shirt and they had on a short sleeve dress shirt. Okay, this is a good confession of hypocrisy. He's identifying a real problem, and he's using himself as an example of it. Great. What's the solution, Perry? Try harder? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Just do it? How about Christ and him crucified for our sins, living in daily contrition and repentance? Let's continue. Therefore, I must love Jesus more than them. That game is played in every church every Sunday where people actually think that they're impressing God by the clothes they wear, not understanding that Jesus can see through your clothes to your heart. Perry, it's everybody who thinks they can impress God by doing good works. It's not about impressing God by the clothes you wear. It's by believing that you can impress God by by obeying him, doing the law. You'd misunderstand the law. You're not correctly diagnosing the problem here. You're looking at a surface issue, not the root. Those who would think they're impressing God by what they're wearing ultimately think they can impress God by what they do. You're missing that part. But it's all about the show. And this guy right here, he's, he's all about how others perceive him and not actually how he was living. We're going to see that in a minute. So leads to number two. It's not about what we know. It's not about the show. It's not about what we know. Verse um, 18. I love this because... I have a philosophy, and a lot, and some people disagree with me, and that's okay. That they have a right to be wrong. Um, but I think Jesus was a smart aleck a lot of times. You can't read the Bible and not, I mean, Jesus was, Jesus loved people. Nah, he was a smart aleck sometimes. Read Matthew 23. He goes off. 
It's awesome. And in verse 18, he has... Okay, there's nothing in this text that says that Jesus is a smart aleck. Perry's reading that in. I will agree with him, though, that Jesus does go off on people. That's not smart aleck. That's just in your face. Jesus was not a meek and mild, um, uh, politically correct, girly man. Nothing of the sort. He was actually very bold and in your face, and he said it the way it was. I don't think, though, Jesus here is playing games or being snarky. I think he really, really, the text says that he loved this man. Okay? Truly loved this man. What was the guy's issue? Let's take a look at the text real quick here. I'm going to point something out to you so that you can kind of get a feel for what's going on here. Now, you've got to interpret this passage in light of clear passages because there's something obscure in this text. Okay? The clear passages, read Galatians, read the book of Romans, clearly state we are not saved by our works or keeping the law, nor do we impress God in such a way. Okay? Instead, our good works flow from repentant faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? And the purpose of the law, God's law, the law cannot save us. It cannot make God go, wow, I'm impressed by that guy. No. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, that's trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you got to keep that in mind. So Jesus is going to use the law to show that this guy is guilty of idolatry. Okay? And so as a result of it, if you when you understand that, the thing is, is that the real thing hinges on when Jesus said, there's one thing that you lack. Let me read the text for you in context. Here we go. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we read. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know, the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Okay. Notice <clears throat> Jesus kind of sets this up with a very important question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You can say Jesus at this point is being, well, a little whimsical if you would. Why? Who is Jesus? He's God in human flesh. No one is good except for God alone. And that's kind of the key here. And then Jesus launches into, well, the second table of the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that have to do with our love towards neighbor. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And remember, the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Silly question. You don't earn an inheritance it's given so jesus said so he said to him teacher all of these things i've kept from my youth i've kept the, these commandments jesus looking at him loved him and said to him you lack one thing 
you lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, Jesus is not saying if you sell all you have and give it to the poor that you're going to have salvation. That's not how you inherit eternal life. Okay. Instead, let, let me help you out here. If Now, I'm a confessional Lutheran. Always good that we have our confessions here to help us out here. Let's take a look at the Augsburg Confession, number 12 on repentance. Let me read this to you. It is taught among us that those who sin after baptism receive forgiveness of sins when they come to repentance, and absolution should not be denied them by the church or forgiveness of sins. Properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow or terror on account of sin, and yet at the same time to believe the gospel and absolution, namely that sin has been forgiven and grace has been obtained through Christ, and this faith will comfort the heart and again set it at rest. Amendment of life and the forsaking of sin would then follow, for these must be the fruits of repentance, as John says, bear fruit that befits repentance. That's Matthew chapter 3.18. So rejected are those who teach that persons who have once become godly cannot fall again. Condemned, on the other hand, are the Novatians who denied absolution and such as have sinned after baptism. And rejected are those who teach that forgiveness of sin is not obtained through faith, but through satisfaction or works made by man. So properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow on account of sin and to believe that God forgives your sins on account of Christ, an amendment of life and the forsaking of sin then follows, these must be the fruits of repentance. Okay? So here Jesus is not saying, if you do these things, then you will be saved. What's Jesus expecting? Contrition for sin. Which sin? He's not contrite here when it comes to the second table. He says that he's kept the second table of the law. Jesus doesn't challenge him on that, but Jesus points him to the fact that he's guilty of committing the sin of idolatry. And Jesus is expecting him to keep to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and in this case, repenting of the sin of idolatry. You will have no other gods before me. This guy, what did he lack? What is the thing that he lacked? He lacked Jesus. See, Jesus said, you lack one thing. So Jesus wants him to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and come follow Jesus. The thing that he doesn't have is Christ. He doesn't have God. And that's why Jesus asks the question up front, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Jesus is basically saying, yeah, I am God. And what's the one thing he lacks? True fear, love, and trust in the one true God. The thing he lacks is faith and trust in Jesus. And if he truly was contrite for his sin of idolatry, he would bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And then he would follow Jesus. Plain and simple. The thing he lacks is Jesus. Now, let me give you a cross-reference to this. We there, The Gospels are absolutely amazing. 
in that um, in that they provide us not only sometimes with uh, with passages that um, that show us how things go terribly wrong, but in the Gospel of Luke chapter nineteen we have an example of this, of exactly what it is that Jesus is calling this rich young ruler to doing. Okay, Luke chapter 19, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over there. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'll read. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So here we've got a rich tax collector. Bad combo, by the way, because in Israel, tax collectors were basically seen as traitors. Okay. And where, how did he get his wealth? Well, pretty much by uh, screwing over his own Hebrew brothers and sisters. Yeah. So here we've got he, this. Think of this guy as like the rich young ruler. Okay. It's the same scenario in a sense, okay? He was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the count of the crowd, he could not because he was a, he was small of stature, so he's a short guy. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus for himself, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Wow. Jesus is going to hang out with a rich sinner tax collector? So Zacchaeus hurried and came down, and he received Jesus joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled and said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Right. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods, I give them to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Was Zacchaeus saved by giving half of his possessions to the the poor and restoring what he has defrauded people fourfold? No. He was not, for we are saved by grace through faith on account of what Christ has done for us. But we know that Zacchaeus had faith, and he was truly contrite and sorry for his sin and for what he had done because he was bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. So when you read the story of the rich young ruler and you foil it against the story of Zacchaeus, you see that we're dealing with the same thing. And there's there's this tragedy then, tragedy in the Mark text. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Zacchaeus gained Christ, and Christ came to seek and to save the lost. We read this of the, of the rich young ruler. He was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So did Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man, and none, none of his wealth meant anything to him in light of the fact that he had Jesus. What was the thing that Zacchaeus had that the rich young ruler lacked? Jesus. Because if the rich young ruler truly had Jesus and repented and was contrite and sorrowful for his idolatry of worshiping and serving money, then like Zacchaeus, he would have sold everything. He would have given it to the poor and he would have had Jesus. See, that's what's at the root of idolatry. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You can't serve the one true God and false gods. You can't do that. It's impossible. And Jesus calls you to repent of your idolatries. Let go of your idols as worthless and slavishly binding as they are and receive the forgiveness of sins and receive and have Jesus. You see, when you look at this passage in light of what the clear of what's really going on here and compare it even to the story of Zacchaeus, boy, things really come to life. True repentance, true actions in keeping with that repentance. That's what true faith does. Faith without works is dead. Just as the body is not that isn't breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. How do we know that Zacchaeus had true saving faith? Look at his works. Look at his repentance. Look at the actions. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man. How do we know the rich young ruler didn't have faith when he left? There were no works. There was no faith. He had no Jesus. He was just left sorrowful. One thing he lacked was Jesus. He chose to hang on to his wealth. Let's continue with the sermon. A little smart aleck moment. I loved it. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. Look at this. No one is good except God alone. I loved it. He said that with a smirk, I think. Which, by the way, for the people here that go, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. Well, Jesus said no one's good except God. So if you're saying you're good, then you're claiming you're God. And we all know that's not true. Unless you're a new age, you're going, I'm God. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's a great point. Now you need to bring us to the gospel. You're confusing law and gospel here. You correctly point some things out, Perry, but then you don't bring us back to Christ and him crucified for our sins, even for the Christian. You suck as God. You can't even solve your own problems. Okay, verse 19. Um, whoa, page turned. <laughs> you know the commandments. Look at this, this is Jesus talking. You know the commandments. Do not murder. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. And do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus, I want to, because because here's what we're tempted to do in church. Just like this guy, we're going to see in a minute. He went through and started making a checklist. He started saying, okay, I do that, I do that, I do that. What Jesus basically is saying here to the guy, he's like, hey, you want to inherit eternal life? You want to know me? Read your Bible. That's what he's basically pointing back to. Jesus right here is just pointing back to the scriptures. You want to know me? Read your Bible. What? I would just say to our entire church today, the person that says, I want to know God's will, but will not open God's word is a liar. Every one of us have equal access to God. It's through his word. And we cannot say, I want to grow closer to Jesus if we're not spending daily time in his word. But don't expect him to really preach sound, in-depth biblical stuff. So you need to be in God's word. Get to it. Get cracking. Sounds like something I have to do. Didn't you just say, never mind, this is confusing. It's kind of crazy. Um, We all have, you know, most of us have a cell phone and somebody will send us a text message and we become complete idiots over, like we'll be riding down the road carrying on a normal conversation. Our phone makes that little bling and we go nuts and about wreck trying to see who texted us and what they wanted to say. OMG. I mean, we're, we're kind of doing that all the way down the road. God sent us a big honking text message. A little bit more than 160 characters. He wants us to know him. So Jesus is just pointing back and saying, read the Bible. Now, no, he was pointing to himself. The thing he lacked was Jesus. Just read it for you. Ah. Again, this just proves I, a wise move on Perry's part to not meet me in a sermon cage fight, I would have destroyed him. This guy had obviously been to Bible study. He had obviously, he was obviously well-versed in the deeper things of theology because he said this, verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy, (laughs) which let me stop. Had he, had he really kept all these commands? I mean, come on, seriously. I mean, just go back through them. Um, do not murder. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, to hate someone in your heart is equivalent with murder. So he hadn't kept that one. How about you, Perry? You hate your critics. How are you doing on it? it by the way, this is, a, this is the valid use of God's law. He's doing it right here. He's using God's law lawfully. What's the solution? Christ and him crucified for our sins. So Perry here is preaching some pretty good law. I got to give him props. This is a correct use of it. You don't hear me going, law, law. No, this is right. He's basically using God's law to show us that we are all wretched, rotten sinners, and we don't keep it. Props to you on that. You're doing it right. But if you don't give us Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution, then you turn us back on ourselves and basically say it's up to you to solve your own problem. Good luck. That's the same things that the uh, priests in the temple said to Judas. When he came to them for absolution, I have sinned against innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? You take care of it yourself. Yeah, think about it. Um, Do not commit adultery. But Jesus said to actually look at a woman lustfully 
was to commit adultery. So right there, every man on the planet is busted. Right on. He's using the law right here. Absolutely. Great job, Perry. Not me. Okay, you're an adulterer and a liar, bro. I mean, we're all busted. Like, he thought he was better than he really was. Simply this. I got to explain this. He thought it was better than what he really was simply because he was putting on a show and because of all the knowledge that he had. No, it had nothing to do with all the knowledge he had. It had to do with the fact that he made money his idol, and that's what Jesus pushed him on. Jesus then turns to him and pushes him on first table stuff. You will have no other gods before me, God says. And he had made money his idol. Now, I get, I get misunderstood a lot, so let me clarify, because I go off on people that say they're deep all the time. I'm deep. If you have to tell someone you're deep, you're not. And I've had people say, well, Perry, Perry thinks that people shouldn't go deep in the Word of God. I've never said that. I love getting my Bible. I love opening it. I love discovering new things. But here's the thing I've discovered. Okay, listen. We've heard this a million times from purpose-driven pastors, and this is deadly stuff. A lot of people in the church use knowledge as an excuse for disobedience. Uh, who is doing that? Knowledge is an excuse for disobedience. Well, Perry, what's your excuse for your disobedience? Okay. Is ignorance your excuse for disobedience? Because you don't keep God's law perfectly. You sin daily. I know it. I've seen you do it on stage. So what's your excuse? I want to know a lot about the Bible, but I don't actually want to do what it says. And what I've discovered in the church and working in the church now for 20 years is there's a lot of people in the church that claim they want to know a lot. I've got big ears for God. I want to just hear all I can. Here's the problem. Those most of the time who have the biggest ears also have the biggest rears. They want to hear a lot, but they want to sit on their rear and not actually go apply the everything that God has told them to do. Listen, I'm all about learning more. I'm all about learning more, but here's the reality. We're all educated way beyond the level of our obedience anyway. You know what? <laughs> right. So what's your, what's your solution, Perry? Maybe you should just focus on one verse and, until you get it right. I mean, and stop preaching. Go lock yourself up in a monastery, please. You know what God's been pressing into me lately? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I could go on that for the rest of my life. That's deep. Good luck. Have fun. Again, he doesn't understand. He uses the law lawfully here. And the, the, the lawful use of the law is to show us that we're all sinners and we don't keep it, including him. Notice that that's kind of the missing part of all of this. He doesn't keep it either. I know. He's saying, well, you, have you met Perry? Yeah, I've met him, but I've never spent any personal time with him. Well, then how do you know that he sins daily and it has all these problems? Because I can read the Bible. The purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness, and it does show us what a good work is. But at this point, he's acting like he's pulling it off. He's not. Not even close. And he now he's grinding on his favorite axe. 
Uh, you're educated in more, far more than your obedience anyway. So are you, Perry. You don't even understand what the law is for. That is such a statement made out of ignorance and a complete lack of understanding of the Bible. We are to know the full counsel of the word of God. And we're not to limit ourselves and basically say, I better just focus only on that thing that I'm, I'm actually pulling off. Because if you think you're actually pulling off God's law and you're actually doing it, you have no idea what God's law truly demands of you. So it's not about the show. And it's not necessarily about what we know. In fact, most, many of us, many of us, we know so much. If we just did what we knew, the world would be changed. Number three. If we just did what we knew, the world would be changed. Uh, we're supposed to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We're not supposed to go and change the world. Three, it's about what needs to go. It's about what needs to go. Um, I went to the doctor recently, which is a minor miracle, me going to the doctor. Um, I just don't do that a lot. Even if I'm deathly sick, I'll be like, I think I'll be fine. But I had to go to the doctor because I haven't, I've, I've had problems probably the past two or three years with sleeping. Um, I have a problem sleeping, which it's, it's kind of weird. I can go to sleep just like that. Like, like my wife is blown away at how fast I can go to sleep. We'll be laying in bed and bam, I can go to sleep. But my problem is I wake up at like 1.30 in the morning and I can't shut my mind down. And like, so I'm sitting there going, okay, da, 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 kind of working stuff out. And finally I'm like, I can't do this. I need to go to sleep. I need to go to sleep. And I'll lay there and I'll be like, just go to sleep. Just go. How flipping hard is it just to just go to sleep? I can't sleep. And, and, and so I'm, I'm that guy. I can't go to sleep. And so I finally had to go to the doctor, and I said, you know, I can't sleep or whatever. And she and I are talking back and forth. And I knew what she was going to ask, but I, hope, I was hoping she wouldn't ask it. And she said, well, let me ask you this question. Um, and she's got a little list. She said, how much coffee do you drink? Now, I love coffee. I love coffee. Specifically, I've switched even from Starbucks to Dunkin' Donuts. First of all, because Anderson has one. I know Greenville, y'all got a Starbucks. Florence is like, we've got a Starbucks. I, I know. Praise God for that. We don't, and I'm bitter. So, so I, but I, I really do. I've, I've, got, I've got a coffee grinder at home. I've got, like, the coffee machine. I've, I mean, I've got an espresso machine. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm that guy. I'm a coffee snob. I love coffee. Preaching about himself again. Coffee. And I knew, I knew, I knew my doctor was going to ask me about coffee, and I was kind of hoping we could avoid that question. She said, how much coffee do you drink? I said, well, she said, don't lie to me. I said, um, about nine or ten cups a day. Yeah, she did the same thing. And then she said, I think I found your problem. I was like, what? <laughs> I'll write it down. You need to quit drinking coffee. I was like, why well, we got to talk about my coffee? Why can't we talk about your coffee? She's like, because I'm not the one with a problem. She, all she did was simply point to something that I already knew. And she was like, hey, you want this area of your life to be right? You got to let go of this. And I know you love it, but if you don't let this go, this area of your life is going to be completely out of whack. That's the way it is in the rich young ruler. Salvation by surrender. Yeah. 
See, he, the, see, the rich young ruler, yeah, he just didn't have that piece of his life that he didn't surrender to God. See, that's all he needed to do was inherit, to inherit eternal life. He just needed to surrender that. Jesus didn't say there's something you need to give up. He said there's something you lack. One thing you lack. What was the thing he lacked? He lacked Christ. He lacked God because money was his God. It was his idol. Go back to the story of Zacchaeus. Look at how this works out positively. Because we all know, I mean, if you grew up in church, you know this story. But the problem is we don't place ourselves in the story. Look what happens. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, if you've got your Bible open, I want you to underline that, that sentence because that is, that is so huge. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Let me tell you why this is so important. Let me tell you why this is so important. Jesus is about to call something out in his life that's wrong. It's obviously messed up. And Jesus is about to put his finger on it. And it's about to sting. And it's about to hurt. And he's doing it because he loves him. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor that says this phrase, and I just fell in love with this phrase as soon as I heard it. Jesus is not in love with some future version of you. He really, if you're a Christian, listen, he really does love you. And he loves you as you are, but he also loves you enough to press into you and to press into me to reveal to us what's wrong in our life so we can change. See, the idea that we have of love in America is love equals tolerance, and that's stupid. Love does not equal tolerance. Love equals speaking the truth in love. I um I remember one time being at a really large church, and I'm not going to call the name of the church, but it's a really large church, great church, phenomenal worship team, and they had one of those boom cameras. I don't know if you've ever seen those with those cameras that kind of swoop in and they kind of get really cool. It sounds like Saddleback. Cool shots. And they talked about getting one here, but I told them no because, like, if I preach too long, they'd be like, okay, and kind of knocking me off stage, so we're not doing that. But I never will forget, they had this, they had this woman singing on stage and she was a very attractive lady and she's singing she had an unbelievable voice i mean it was beautiful and carrie job and they had this boom camera and it was coming in and it came up from under here and she had her hands raised like this and i'm on the front row and i'm looking at the screen because 85 percent of the people here at the anderson campus are looking at the screen right now and so i was looking at the screen and in her nose was the <laughs> It was the biggest booger I've ever seen. Like, she was like, I love you, Jesus. And it was like, me too. Like, seriously, I was looking at it. It had arms, legs, and a tail. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I'm going, somebody should have spoken some truth to the sister and been like, hey, 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 hey. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it should have happened. Oh, come on. You know you've done it. Don't judge me. <laughs> like, how do you let that happen? How do you let her go on stage? Somebody, somebody didn't love that girl. She had made somebody mad. See, when we love somebody, we're going to speak truth to them. You don't let somebody walk out there like that. So Jesus, the Bible says, the Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said this, this is, listen, don't. One thing you lack. 
Now, just a quick question. Everybody in the room, everybody here. If you were sitting face-to-face with Jesus, what would he say to you in regards to the one thing that you lack? Um, This is a story about the rich young ruler. The thing that the rich young ruler lacked was Jesus. Look at the text carefully. That's the point. That's the thing that Jesus is making, the point that he lacks. He lacks Jesus. So if Jesus were to ask you, what's the one thing, if if Jesus were to tell me what's the one thing I lack, it wouldn't be, I don't lack anything. I have everything in Christ. I am forgiven because of him. I am clothed with his righteousness. I lack all, I lack nothing. He's completely sufficient. And I do good works because of that gospel, because he's raised me from the dead. Not because I have to, but because that's what my faith does automatically. <sighs> now, I know some people are like, I'm, I'm good. And we understand you walked on water this morning. You're going to go multiply fishes and loaves and feed a bunch of people. That's awesome. We're glad you're here. But to everybody else in here who's honest. The, notice this is all interpreted through the law. Where's the gospel, Perry? See, because no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, there's always a next step. So what is the area? Next step is law talk. Now, he was using the law lawfully when he was pointing out our sin. Now he's using it unlawfully. Because now it's up to us to solve the problem, to fix the thing, to do the thing. (sighs) It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We do all of our good works in light of the gospel. Romans 12.1, therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. In light of the gospel. Nope, this is just pure self-righteousness. The very thing he's condemning, he's going, the, his, type, his preaching is actually going to create. Unbelievable. In your life, that he would say, we need to deal with this one thing because here's what i've discovered until you deal with that one it's not going away and here's the dangerous things of here's the dangerous thing about jesus he's coming after our hearts uh well there's nothing good in my heart jesus says out of the heart comes all kinds of vile filthy sinfulness murders adultery gossip you know that kind of stuff sexual and it all comes out of the heart he's not coming after my heart he's he died on the cross because of the wickedness that I live that comes out of my heart. He don't care about the show. But by the way, by by repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel, our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. Through our baptisms, our hearts are circumcised by Christ, the hands of Christ himself. Look at Colossians chapter 2. So yeah, in a way, he is coming for our hearts. But that he's not preaching the gospel here. This is you having to do it. Show or what we know. He's coming after our heart. And he knows the one thing right now that's keeping us. Because, listen, I said at the beginning, the thing I lack is holding me back from having a walk with Jesus. So so since you sin every day and sin much, Perry, um, how is this working out for you? You're using the law as your solution to your problem that you don't keep the law. Good luck.
So if he was going to point to this one thing in your life that you lacked, what would Jesus was pointing to the one thing that he lacked, and that was Jesus. Jesus points us to himself. We live, focus our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. What would he bring up? Because, see, here's the deal. Let's not play games. You know. You know. He did it because he loved me. He said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, then come, follow me. In other words, he's saying, you think you're a follower of me because you got your hands raised and you're asking the right question, you got your journal open and you've been to a Bible study and you know a bunch of stuff? Jesus is going, I'm not buying it. There's this one area in your life that's not surrendered to me. And if you want to be a... Oh, it wasn't one area. It was the whole person. Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, you're close. Although the, the one thing he lacked was the thing. He lacked Christ. Be a follower of me, you've got to get, you've got to deal with this area. Jesus went for the heart. Jesus went where it hurt. And see, a lot of people are like, see, that's what I don't like about Jesus. He wants to limit me. I love it when people go, Jesus wants to limit us and limit our freedom. Jesus didn't come to limit our freedom. He came and died for us so that we could actually live in freedom. I discovered this the other day. We got, um, I agree with you, Perry. Sinfulness is slavery. That's the way Scripture talks about it. How does Christ set us free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil? I know. He defeats sin, death, and the devil by dying on the cross for our sins and raising on the third day for our justification. Why aren't you preaching the gospel? Caterpillars all over. I guess there's a breeding ground my house is for caterpillars. Caterpillars are everywhere. And so Karis is picking up caterpillars. She's my three, two-year-old little girl. She's picking up caterpillars. She's like, look, Daddy, look, Daddy. And so she's not scared of them. She's picking up caterpillars all the time. And um, she had one the other day. And I'm like, baby, don't, I, don't, I don't like them. They're kind of gross. Um, I came in the other day, and there was one on my neck. I, I think she might have put it there. I'm not sure. I thought it was a spider at first, so I crapped my pants. But after, afterwards, it was, I was fine. Um, but there, so, so, so she's playing with bugs and stuff. No problem. So the other morning I went out for a run. I came in from the run. I'm in the laundry room. I noticed Karis in the floor. She's like, look, daddy bug, look, daddy bug. She's in the floor and she's reaching toward this bug. And Lucretia and I stepped in and it wasn't a caterpillar. It's a scorpion. And here's my little girl reaching for the scorpion. Now, had I responded to her the way our tolerant system in America responds to her, I'd have been like, well, who am I to tell her what's wrong? I mean, everybody has their own belief system. If she don't believe that'll hurt her, it probably won't. See, that's just stupid. We grabbed our little girl and pulled her away from the scorpion, which in her mind was limiting her freedom. She got pretty upset about the whole thing. But because we're wiser than her, we saw the potential harm that it was going to cause. And so we separated her from what was ultimately going to harm her. That's what God is trying to do with us today. That's why Jesus will push on this one area in our life. And he's not trying to limit us. He's trying to set us free. So he said, there's, there's something you lack in your life. 
you're right. Jesus wants to set us free. Again, he does that by dying on the cross for our sins and calling us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Gospel completely missing. This is apparently the good news of you get to save yourself by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Good luck. Now, a lot of people, um, I've heard they use this passage right here to say that we should go out and sell all of our goods and, and live in communes and only come out on triple coupon Thursdays and, and do all that stuff. It's not what that means. Jesus is speaking to one person about his issue. It was money. We'll get to that in just a second. So his issue was idolatry. Money was his God. So what is the issue he would speak to you on? Because Jesus said, go sell every." In other words, he issued a command, go. In other words, there will always, anytime we read the word of God, it's never for information. It's for transformation. So Jesus is trying to transform him by giving him a command, go. No, he's trying to transform him by pointing him to Christ and having him repent of his idolatry. Not by giving him a command. The thing he lacked was Christ. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, I'll give you something back that will replace what you gave up for me and even more. God never asked us to give something up that he doesn't give us back something better than what we actually gave up in the first place. The thing he would have received is Christ who cares about the reward. And then he says, then come follow me because you're not walking with me. You're not walking with me. You're walking around me. And if you want to walk with me, you've got to drop the show. You've got to drop the knowledge and you've got to just get real. So let me ask you. Yeah, you just got to get real. See, it's salvation by getting real. It's salvation by commandment. He misses the gospel. Ask you a question because all of us can look at the rich young ruler and go, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if God told me to do that, I'd do that. Okay, fine. But maybe he's not saying to you, go sell all your possessions and good. Maybe he's saying to you, if you want to follow me, you're living with a man that you're not married to. You need to move out if you want to follow me. See, the first pushback is you can't. Actually, it would be repent and be forgiven and then bear fruit in keeping with that forgiveness if you, you truly trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you're repentant and you're shacking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you would bear fruit in keeping with that repentance by moving out. Here, Perry is putting the moving out ahead of salvation. This is works righteousness you're hearing. You're not hearing biblical Christianity and this is not Christian sanctification either. Say that. Well, of course I can because I just did. Well, Perry, the economy. Yeah, see, here's the deal. God's not worried about the economy. Maybe he would say to you, you want to follow me? You've got to stop having sex with a person you're not married to. You've got to confess your porn addiction. You can't have the affair anymore. He would say, you want to follow me? You've got to worship me with your money. See, here's what's crazy. In a few minutes, we're about to protect... See, if you use the story of Zacchaeus as kind of the foil for the right way of looking at this, what would happen? 
Somebody would have an encounter with Christ, repent of their sins, be forgiven, salvation would come to them, and they would show their they would show their faith and repentance in their works the way Zacchaeus did. So you think of the prostitutes, Jesus forgiving prostitutes. Do you think those prostitutes left prostitution? You bet you bet your bippy they did. Why? Because they were forgiven. They were granted repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ. How can they remain in it? Jesus had set them free from it. Here, Perry's basically saying, set yourself free and then come follow Jesus. No, Jesus sets people free and they bear fruit in keeping with that release, that redemption. Let's continue. Maybe we'll hear something about the forgiveness of sins. I'm hoping for a gospel nugget here. Take of the Lord's Supper. Bread and juice represents body and blood. And when we look at it, we're looking at it going, Jesus gave it all for me. Surrender. Oh, man. So now we're turning, you're turning the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The bread and juice represents, oh, good Lord. I'm going to have to unpack that in another program. <sighs> and now it's, see, look, Jesus gave it all for gave it all up for you. Now you need to give it all up for him. So there, this is doing the sacrament in light of the law, not the gospel. The gospel says, the gospel, when you look at the gospel way of looking at the sacrament, this is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, drink, this is the blood, my the, my blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Keep in mind, Jesus never said represents or symbolizes. He said this is. For the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say, take, eat. Look, I gave it all up for you, now you need to give it all up for me. That's interpreting the sacrament in light of the law, not the gospel. I mean, this might as well be Rome, the Roman Catholic Mass he's getting ready to preside over. His body beaten, broken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He there it is. That's the gospel nugget. But notice he's preaching the gospel nugget in light of the law. Hang on. There it went. Um, let me back this up so that you can hear the gospel nugget. He's preaching the gospel nugget as law i mean unbelievable I, this is kind of a new this is a first I, I it's been a while since i've heard somebody preach the law of uh, the gospel as the law listen carefully he's pre you're hearing the gospel but he's preaching it as law push back is you can't say that well of course i can because i just did appear the economy yeah see here's the deal god's not worried about the economy maybe he would say to you you want to follow me You've got to stop having sex with a person you're not married to. You've got to confess your porn addiction. You can't have the affair anymore. He would say, you want to follow me? You've got to worship me with your money. See, here's what's crazy. In a few minutes, we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. Bread and juice represents body and blood. And when we look at it, we're looking at it going, Jesus gave it all for me. Surrendered his body, beaten, 
broken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He literally shed his blood on the cross. He gave it all for me. And uh, oh, you want me to tithe? <laughs> yeah, the gospel nugget preached his law. Unbelievable. Yeah, again, this proves. I, again, Perry Noble, very wise not to meet me face to face in a sermon cage fight. I would have absolutely obliterated him. It wouldn't have even been fair. I mean, seriously. I mean, I would have been like a big old sumo wrestler in the ring, and he would have been a small kid. I would have just grabbed him by the head, and he wouldn't be swinging at me, and he wouldn't be able to touch me. That's how pathetic this is. You don't understand. It's Old Testament. What's reality is there's some people here, you're going to be tempted to take the body and blood, and your money's not surrendered to God. And let's not talk about the economy because let's just be real. There's people here today, this year, you spent more money on your yard and your dog than you have the kingdom of God this year. That sucks. Don't play games with God. Play games with him. Some of us in this room, we have forgiveness issues. Listen, you can't take the body and the blood of the Lord if you have somebody in your life that you hate and you secretly wish today that they would die. I wonder if he has those thoughts about me because, again, there are no godly critics in his world. You can't do that. You can't say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness, but I'm not offering it. Like, you can't. Baptism. There are people on our campuses, you refuse to be baptized. Baptism is the first thing that Jesus asked us to do after we meet Christ. He said, once we meet Christ, we go public through baptism. Uh, can you give me a chapter and verse on that, please? There is no verse in the Bible that says any such nonsense about baptism. Again, I would have absolutely just mopped this guy off the floor if we had met in a sermon cage fight. Yeah, I, I think it's best that you know he not have to suffer that shame. So I'm glad that he chickened out. By immersion, by the way, is the way, way he teaches. There are people on our campuses, they're like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that because, man, my family would get really offended because we come from a background that don't really do that. And da, 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 da. Listen, if, you, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going you're gonna to offend some people. Oh, by the way, every one of our campuses, we have a baptism coming up in a couple weeks, May 15th, tailgate baptism on every campus. You need to get signed up. A, a tailgate baptism? Are they going to have brats and, you know, maybe pull out a slip and slide or something, you know, a big tailgate baptism? Sounds so holy and righteous. Sign me up. Will there be pizza? Maybe there'll be like, you know, a bounce house or something, you know, big, big tailgate baptism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire up some, you know, hamburgers, maybe some hot dogs. Maybe sit around in a big old lounge chair and swap mosquitoes off my arm. You know, that just sounds like fun. Big old tailgate baptism right on. I wonder if they'll have the tailgate baptism at a jockey lot. Yeah, those of you in the South know what I'm talking about. Let me ask you a question. What is the one area in your life that Jesus would push down on and say, you're lacking in this area? Because in just a few minutes, we're going to do, we're going to. I can, I know what the one area is for Perry Noble, rightly handling God's word. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. And if you're not willing to surrender that area, of your life, just let the elements go right by. Let's know what the Lord's Supper is about. If you're a sinner and you know it, 
and you know you're not worthy and you need the forgiveness of sins, don't let the elements go by. That's Christ's body and blood broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, it is. It was never intended to be an ordinance to make us feel better about ourselves because we partook of the bread and the wine. It was no, again, ordinance. Uh, Lord's Supper is law, not gospel. Unbelievable. How can it be law when it's for the forgiveness of sins? It was intended as an ordinance for us to reflect and refocus our lives on the God who gave it all for us. Again, gospel as law. Here's what's sad. What's really sad is that there's no gospel here. You're basically preaching people into the hell, into hell via works righteousness. Lovely. That's the sad part. Last verse. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Here was his statement to Jesus. You're not enough. Jesus is pressing in on an issue on every one of us today, and the question ultimately is this. He's asking you, am I enough? Great question. Right, the sufficiency of Christ. Can you preach something about that? Rather than putting it as a question, is Jesus enough? Why don't you show us from the Scripture how Jesus is enough, how Jesus is sufficient for our salvation, and how good works flow from the sufficiency of that good news? The rich young ruler walked away because he wouldn't deal with the one thing. Now, here's what's crazy. I'll say this and I'm going to close. There are people all your life you've gone to church and you've looked at this story and you said, how could he do that? How could he walk away? And many of us are going to do the same thing if we don't deal with that one thing. The thing I lack is holding me back from actually walking with Jesus. Oh, by the way, I said we'd come back to on the way. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He was inviting this guy to actually walk to a place where he gave it all and died. Yeah, there we go. Another gospel nugget. That's the second today. Gave it all up and died. Wait a second. Died for what? Lots of people die, Perry. I don't know if you're familiar with this little fact, but the death rate is still 100%. Ain't nobody getting off this planet alive. Got it? Everybody going to die. You, me, well, unless Christ comes back. But seriously, right now, it's the death rate's 100%. So Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die doesn't tell me anything about what he was doing. People die every day. Why was he dying, Perry? Jesus doesn't want some of us he wants all of us, and the way to start that process today is to deal with that one thing he's pushing on right now. Law, absolutely unbelievable. We pray with me, all of our campuses. No, we'll not pray with you. All right, so there you have it, the latest Perry Noble sermon, and uh, he's, he even preached the gospel as the law. Wonderful.
You know, it reminds me of uh, what's written in the Augsburg Confession uh, regarding what a church is. Uh, Augsburg Confession, Article Number 7, says this, It is also taught among us that one holy Christian church will be and remain forever. This is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is preached in its purity, and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. For it is sufficient for the true unity of the Christian church that the gospel be preached in conformity with a pure understanding of it and that the sacraments be administered in accordance with the divine word. True Christian unity exists where the gospel is preached in its purity and the sacraments administered according to the gospel. I could care less whether or not Perry Noble has contemporary music, uh, has a band, dresses funny. Um, I could care less about any of that. If Perry Noble actually preached the gospel in conformity with the scripture, the pure gospel, and he administered the sacraments in accordance with the gospel, I would claim unity with him. But because he preaches law and law and more law and doesn't preach the biblical gospel and then turns around and even worse, administers the the sacraments in accordance with the law, not the gospel. I, I don't claim to have any unity with this guy. He's a false teacher who has false visions regarding his false methods to help promote his false gospel. And ultimately, who does he preach about? Himself, not Christ. This was not a this was not a sermon about Jesus. This was a sermon about well Perry, and you but not really about Jesus. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see a friendly yellow button that says, uh, join our crew, and another one that says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And you also get access to the Pirate Cove when you do that. Um, you also, uh, if you want to fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? We'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.